Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. Uh, you know, I'm always looking for a positive story in these uh, bleak times, and we have one for you this week. We've finally come up with something that is um, cause for optimism, let's say, guarded optimism. Uh, Jennifer Berkshire, who co-hosts the Have You Heard podcast and covers education, is going to tell us about how uh, right-wing culture warriors faced a really stunning series of defeats in school board elections in New Hampshire, and they ran on uh, the kind of contrived issues that Republicans are hoping to use to bring about a red wave this fall. So maybe it is a portent of things at least not being as sucky as they are right now. Um, then we're going to be joined by Jim Kessler from Third Way, the uh, advocacy group, the centrist kind of advocacy group, to talk about a new an analysis that he and his colleague did, which uh, really blows up some lazy conventional wisdom about uh, the spike in gun crime that we've seen uh, over the past couple of years. Um, it's a it's a much needed corrective to. Uh, some some really damaging reporting and 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 <clears throat> you know it's it's interesting we'll talk about this how the pundits just run with you know these, these conservative narratives about liberal policies leading to uh, an, an uptick in crime and and this has always been the way it is somehow they really um, they really are able to uh, influence shape the reporting on those issues. We've talked about issue ownership. This is a concept in, in political science where, you know, if a party always talks about whatever the issue is, the public comes to associate that party with, with a, a better capability of, of managing that issue. So when it comes to crime, you know, the right always talks about crime. They're tough on crime. They're tough on crime. They want more police. They want more police. And then over years and decades, it eventually people just decide, okay, well, Republicans are, are taking, taking crime seriously. Uh, first, a few items you may have missed. A new study was published this week in the Journal of American Medicine, uh, which found that average life expectancies have diverged between red and blue states. This has been going on since the 90s, and uh, that this has to do with public policies in those states. The author, Stephen Wolf, wrote, and I quote, the widening gap cannot be explained by changes in the racial and ethnic composition of states because the same trend occurred within racial and ethnic groups. He goes on to say that the growing polarization of public policies across states is the most likely uh, explanation. Uh, he writes, and I quote, states assumed increasing powers decades ago when the Reagan administration in the 1980s and the U.S. Congress in the 1990s promoted devolution a policy aimed at shifting authorities and resources to the states. Health outcomes changed as states took different approaches to Medicaid, workplace, and product safety, the environment, tobacco control, food labeling, gun ownership, and needle exchange programs. These policies had predictable consequences. For example, states that raised cigarette taxes experienced fewer tobacco-related illnesses. And obviously, we've seen this with COVID very clearly. Anyway, you slice the data places that voted for uh, Trump have suffered more deaths per capita than those that went for Biden. And that's true on the, uh, when you dig down to the, uh, the congressional district level, especially. And it's, a, it's dramatic when you look at the like reddest and bluest uh, districts, the gap between those. 
In other news, results of Texas's recent primary should raise alarms, and not because of who won or lost those contests. Um, the Associated Press reports that Texas threw out mail votes at, quote, an enorm- abnormally high rate during the nation's first primary of 2020, rejecting nearly 23,000 ballots outright under tougher voting rules that are part of a broad campaign by Republicans to reshape American elections. So this is these are pretty stunning numbers. 13% of all mail ballots were discarded and uncounted in Texas. Uh, and they, the AP notes that the... Uh, that that rate is, quote, far beyond what is typical in a general election when experts say anything above 2% is usually cause for attention. <sighs> now, as you might expect, the uh, so Republicans wrote all these rules. They said, oh, this is going to make it easier to vote, harder to cheat. They just restricted everything. One of the things that they changed is that not only do you need ID, but the ID, so you need to submit ID with your mail-in ballot. But not only that, it has to be the same ID as you registered with. So if you used, say, a driver's license to register, uh, and then you send in a copy of whatever, your passport or your military ID, whatever, um, that would be rejected. Even though both IDs are acceptable to the state, the fact that they're different that you used a different ID to register and to vote would be a cause for them to reject your ballot. So as you might expect, um, the trouble of, and this is according to the Associated Press again, the trouble of navigating new rules was felt in counties big and small, red and blue, but the rejection rate was higher in counties that lean Democratic than Republican. Uh, in Democratic p- counties, 15% of the ballots were rejected, and in Republicans, it was just 9%. So this is frightening stuff. We can thank Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and a handful of other Democrats uh, who see the filibuster as more important than the right to vote and to have those votes counted. Um, we can thank them for this. And, and you know, I don't know how this is going to play out. I will say that, you know, there's a lot of litigation going on and, and this will be, all of this is going to be subject to a lot of, a lot of lit- litigation before uh, before the midterms and certainly before the 2024 election. And on that note, I guess we need a positive story this week. So let's take a quick break and then uh, come right back to, uh, to talk about one. Stay tuned. I feel unhappy.
Welcome back. I'm still Joshua Holland. I'm joined now by Jennifer Berkshire. Jennifer hosts uh, Have You Heard? It's a podcast focused on education. She is also the author with Jack Schneider of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. And she has a piece over at The Nation titled How Progressives Won the School Culture War in New Hampshire, which I would recommend listeners go and check out. It touches on some themes we've been coming back to over the past couple of years on this show, namely the importance of showing up, uh, showing up to school board and city council meetings, paying attention to state and local races, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Jennifer, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time. So the latest front in the rights culture wars, obviously, are schools. It's not a new front, I guess, but they've uh, had a renewed intensity. Um, AstroTurf groups have uh, stirred up often vicious opposition to what they call critical race theory and what we call teaching history honestly uh, and mask mandates and discussion of gender and sexuality and the like. Let's let's start this off with just a big picture of how that played out in New Hampshire school board elections last week. What what happened? Well, um, first, I mean, people may think of New Hampshire as a blue state just based on where it is, and they would be wrong that it is at best a purple state, and there is a lot of a lot of these cities and towns are are very Republican leaning, and so I think that just as in other parts of the country, Republicans had really been hammering this theme that parent grievances were going to be their ticket to you know the midterms, but first they had to get through these school board elections. And so people were really expecting that these, these organizations, uh, some of which have deep pockets, and these loud voices that have been opposed to really like a, a long list of issues that just keeps morphing. Um, so it started out being very focused on pandemic-related stuff, then moved on to race-related stuff. Now it's uh, it's moving into issues of LGBTQ identity, yeah. and and so sure enough. People went to the polls. Uh, a lot of those candidates that I wrote about were first-time candidates. And instead of it being the year of parent grievance, something completely different happened. That outspoken public education advocates and people who were unabashedly progressive won instead. So are you telling me that we have a good news story here? Because it's been a while. I know, I know. Uh, and so... Somebody actually emailed me in the middle of the night and said, you're not going to believe it. And so I, you know, I had to know more because I've been keeping an eye on this and I, and I'm convinced that the Republicans are way overstating the power of this. And that the more that we come to associate issues like parent rights with these extreme positions and unpopular ideas like book banning, the more it's going to backfire on them. So I saw what happened in New Hampshire as an early indication that I may in fact be correct. Yeah. Um, now you you talk uh, let's just give some numbers you uh quoted uh Zandra Rice Hawkins the executive director of Granite State Progress in your piece and that is a group that uh designated 30 candidates as pro public education and 29 of them won their races 29 out of 30 which is really a a a kind of stunning rebuke of the rights culture wars. Uh, you write about some of the people who decided in some cases late in the game to get up off of their asses and get involved and run for these seats. 
tell us a little bit about what motivated some of them specifically. Yeah. So I, um, I started reaching out to people who won really not knowing anything about their stories and, and they were all so interesting. So I opened the piece with this guy named Michael Boucher and he's actually, he's African-American, which I didn't mention in the piece and he's in Southern New Hampshire. And so he starts noticing that there are a lot of really loud voices at the local school board meeting. And he starts going, he's eager to kind of stand up and, you know, and be part of that discussion. And then he, he realizes that a lot of them aren't actually from the town. And he decides that, you know, if he doesn't run, then, you know, chances are somebody from one of those groups is going to run. And he had some campaign experience, which I think really paid off. He understood that he just needed to talk to as many people as possible and really get them thinking about this extremism. And he tapped into something, which is that even though New Hampshire is a Republican state, there are a lot of people who are still very sort of classically Republican, which basically means they, they hate taxes. They don't right. want to spend money on anything. But they're also like doesn't mean that they support things like banning books and going after trans kids, right? And so I think Michael really tapped into that. Other candidates I talked to, what they were really worried about was that it's only a matter of time before these groups start wanting to ban books. And they see that as a, you know, a real threat to not just schools, but to the, you know, the future for kids in New Hampshire, that it means that, you know, the sort of the possibilities start to narrow because there are all these things that are taken off the table as far as what people can talk about. So those were, I was very impressed at how, you know, how thoughtful people were and how willing they were to, to take risks in order to do something that they thought was important. Yeah. Um, can you give us a little bit of background about how these issues had played out in New Hampshire in recent years before these, this, again, kind of stunning rebuke of the right. You talk about a number of laws relating to public education that Republicans had either passed or are trying to pass. Yes. So in addition to the school board flare-ups that we're all familiar now, New Hampshire is really in the grips of, I would just call it hard right rule, that in 2020, Republicans got a trifecta, meaning that they run everything. And what you've seen is this really intense focus on privatizing public education and pursuing this kind of culture war stuff. So New Hampshire has a, a divisive concepts law um, and, and also passed uh, sweeping private school voucher measure. And both of these were very unpopular. The business community fought back against the divisive concepts measure. Um, more recently, another, some more legislators from Southern New Hampshire introduced a teacher loyalty bill that basically would have updated an anti-communist law from the 40s and you know, made it illegal for, for teachers to present any account of the nation's founding that was unflattering. And that if you did that, you were disloyal, then you could be hauled before the state and lose your teaching credentials. That one got uh, voted down because New Hampshire became kind of a laughing stock. But I think that gives you a little bit of a, a picture of the, the climate. It's this combination of using the authority of the state to enforce this very particular 
sort of morality and patriotism, but then also working to dismantle public schools because the people running the state don't believe in them. And uh, they're very hostile to the taxes that pay for them. Yeah. You know, I think this is something that was kind of surprising about your piece. I mean, in a sense, sometimes public education advocates are accused of being hyperbolic when they say that the right's ultimate goal here isn't just to like influence how kids are taught about history, human sexuality, etc., or even to cripple the teachers' unions, even though those are goals. But the real prize is um, at least setting us up for eliminating public education entirely. What can New Hampshire tell us about the validity of those warnings? So I completely agree with what you're saying, right? That people like me always make this claim. And, you know, and after a while, we're kind of like the, you know, the writer who cried wolf a few too many times. Right. But the, the reason I'm so interested in New Hampshire is that you have very powerful groups and individuals who are explicit about this being their goal. So in addition to the conservatives I was talking about, New Hampshire is home to this big and now increasingly influential libertarian project called the Free State Project. And the idea was that that they would convince as many people to move to New Hampshire as possible, and then they would basically turn the state into a libertarian utopia. And that means things like no taxes, but also no what they refer to very disparagingly as government schools. And so they are quite outspoken. And, you know, they're not some fringe uh, group anymore. The Speaker of the New Hampshire House is a member of the Free State Project. The, the, the uh, top education official in the state is very closely tied to the Free State Project. Like this is, you know, they have a particular vision. And so I think it offers a lot of lessons for the rest of the country just because New Hampshire is further along that path. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there is no fringe in the Republican Party right now. The things that used to be fringy are uh, almost without exception, now completely mainstream. Uh, you, you wrote in the piece, and I'll quote, for months now, Republican Party leaders have trumpeted their intention to run hard on parent grievances en route to routing the Democrats in the midterms. Uh, according to this narrative, partially based on the 2021 elections in Virginia, then endlessly echoed by Democratic pundits, parents frustrated over school shutdowns, COVID restrictions, and the focus on race and social justice in schools are the new swing voters poised to flee the Democratic Party. So there's this group, Target Smart, the Democratic-leaning data firm. Uh, they released an analysis this week that found that the conventional wisdom about what swung Virginia uh, to the GOP last year was mostly wrong. Um, what they found was that a significant spike in turnout among elderly voters accounted for most of that swing. And while, you know, I, the authors of the report will acknowledge that the right's moral panic over CRT and hollering about mask mandates and school closures, they may have played a part in that story, may have motivated older voters to come out. It is a, uh, a, a far cry from the popular notion that frustrated parents swung to the GOP in, in, in response to school closures and all of this. Uh, and listeners can check out that report. By the way, it's titled, Did Education Swing the VA Election? Maybe, but probably not. You can Google that. Um, 
I am curious to what degree you think that flawed conventional wisdom has spooked Democrats away from going on the offensive around these issues nationwide. I think that's such a good question. I think that that there, you know, I wasn't exaggerating when I said that, you know, this claim was echoed endlessly by pundits. God, you know, yeah. Mad relentless. And because they define the problem incorrectly, they end up pushing the wrong solution. And so, so there, the problem as they see it is that suburban Virginia voters were angry about school closures. And so then the solution is to go hard at teachers unions, right? Like that's their kind of their, their answer. I, um, there is a lot of really interesting polling out of Virginia, and I'm sure the latest um, report has, I, I think they're on to something, but the larger issue is that the Democrats really do have an education problem. It's just not the one that everybody talks about. And and the, I've got an op-ed um, coming out in the New York Times about this, that you know for the last thirty years the Democrats have insisted that education is the only solution to poverty, and what basically what they've ended up doing is you know seeding this populist backlash. So you you tell the people who are the economic losers that it's their fault that they didn't get ahead, but then you know the the winners of the kind of meritocratic race are told endlessly that they're the winners because they're smart and they worked so hard. And as a result, you know, any effort to make the system more fair sets off a furious backlash among those parents. And so what you see is this kind of weird alliance and the Democrats have to figure out some way to at once protect public education, but stop overselling education as the cure for economic uh, inequality. That's so interesting. Yeah, as the kind of the ultimate ladder up into the middle class, it's it's always sold that way, really. Um, so do you think these results or, or polls that find massive opposition to things like banning books, do you think that might result in some shifts in the terrain here? I mean, we are in a midterm year. That's obviously a relevant question. Yeah, so I think this gets at exactly the question that you were raising. So you see a, a poll come out, and it shows that just you know massive uh, numbers of people are repelled by the idea of of banning books. You know that this like this issue is just a clear loser for the Republicans, and so you wonder, well, why aren't the Democrats hammering away at this? And the answer is because they're still convinced that voters are mad about school closures. And right. so they want to convince them that they're hearing that message and will never have school closures again. And we're, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do, we'll do something else to weaken the teachers unions. Um, when, you know, like, like, why not hamstring the Republicans with this, this issue that is just massively unpopular? Yeah, I mean, they should be hammering them for uh, obsessing over, you know, students' genitals. They should be hammering them for um, gag orders, putting gag orders on teachers. They're, they should be hammering them for a general assault on free speech, on, you know, free speech in the classroom. These are issues that they should be shying away from. Uh, so let me ask you this what organized groups are fighting on 
our side of this issue beyond beyond the teachers unions is it just the teachers unions is is there um an inherently asymmetric battle here in terms of outside groups coming in and, and fighting in school boards both and it's inherently a uh, uh, it's inherently imbalanced because on the one hand you have all these groups for whom this is such an old cause you have you know something like the Heritage Foundation um, that sees this uh, as an opportunity to drive forward an agenda that they've wanted for eons and so they are you know they will spare no expense but there is definitely resistance it's grassroots and you know it's emerging as we speak but just over the last couple of weeks there was tremendous organizing in Indiana they actually beat back this really expansive anti-CRT law and it was a pretty amazing coalition of parent groups, teacher groups, and some unlikely bedfellows. Um, you know, all these laws also apply to charter schools, and charter schools have really been the, the darling of a certain wing of the Democratic coalition now for, you know, for the last couple of decades. But all of a sudden, they're feeling vulnerable because, you know, the, the argument for why we need more charter schools is often couched in terms of civil rights. And all of a sudden, you know, they're being told that, you know, the gag orders apply to them too. So what was interesting in the Indiana case was that you saw education reform groups who have been on the opposite side of issues from, of, from teachers groups forever now coming together to oppose this bill and winning. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of specific things in Indiana that, <clears throat> you know, that helps um, grassroots organizers beat back that effort, including uh, credible charges of a conflict of interest in the bill sponsor, et cetera, et cetera, or maybe as the Speaker of the House. Um, but, you know, I just would like to see, and one of the reasons that I, I wanted to have you on uh, this week, Jennifer, is that I would like to see a more aggressive stance by Democrats and by progressives on these issues. They're winnable, and it's really important that we do win them. And Jennifer Berkshire, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Folks, check out Jennifer's podcast. It is called Have You Heard? Stay tuned. We'll take a quick break and then come right back. Welcome back. Regular listeners may recall that we've spoken about a number of problems inherent in crime reporting that have political ramifications. Uh, crime is an issue that the right has long owned, 
and uh, Democrats are often left in a kind of a defensive crouch when there are real or perceived spikes in crime. And one big problem we've seen over the past couple of years is a data problem because big cities like New York or Los Angeles or wherever, they tend to report crime statistics regularly. Uh, most report them monthly. Uh, but the FBI's uniform crime statistics, which can tell us what's happening in the entire country, uh, in rural communities and smaller cities, are released in the fall of the following year. Like 2021 data won't be available until uh, I think September. And that lag gives Republicans a long time to shape a narrative that big cities, uh, which are mostly Democratic, are, you know, crime ridden swamps. And credulous reporters and pundits often kind of run with that narrative. Maybe a year ago, we discussed this problem, and I suggested that when we had a fuller picture of the spike of homicides that we've seen during the pandemic, which has been all over the news, we would find that it was related to factors other than liberal governance, including obviously the pandemic, and that we would learn that it was evident in conservative communities, small towns, rural communities. We, we still don't have a good picture as far as rural versus urban crime rates, but according to my next guest, who looked at this question from a slightly different angle, I may have been wrong in that the spike in violent crime looks like it was more pronounced in red America than in blue America. Not equally so, but actually more so. Jim Kessler is the executive vice president for policy for the advocacy group Third Way, and he's the co-author, along with Kylie Murdoch of a new report, it's titled The Red State Murder Problem, which you can check out at thirdway.org. Jim Kessler, welcome to We've Got Issues. Hey, great to be here. Um, thanks for taking the time to talk to me about the report. Let's start with the big picture. What did you and your colleague find when you looked at the murder rates in red versus blue states? Well, first, you know, we had the same issues as you. Like, there's, I think crime reporting is one of the laziest reporting that's out there. It really is. And- you know, there's this, you know, narrative that's that's going on that, you know, their crime is out of control and it's it's, um, you know, defund the police. And you're talking about the bad, the very lazy reporting up here. I'm, I live in New York State and it's not just defund the police. We hear a lot about bail reform. Right. So it's all sorts of reforms and it's saying, OK, this is leading to an explosion in crime. And then you know, look, this is a very convenient narrative. It's the sort of thing that, you know, crime is is a voting issue often, and you see Republicans take control of it. And we just thought, like, okay, well, let's look at the data. Let's see what's really going on out there. So we looked at murders really everywhere and compared it to voting behavior, and we did it by state. And we found that, you know, lo and behold, murder rates in states that voted for Donald Trump are 40% higher than the murder rates in states that voted for Joe Biden, eight of the 10 states with the highest murder rates in America not only voted for Donald Trump, they voted Republican in every presidential election, at least dating back to 1996. And then, you know, um, so uh, I'm not saying it's because there's Republican leadership there, but like this narrative is off and we thought it was time to uh, make a stab at correcting it. I'm really glad that you have, um, because this is something, as I said in my little introduction, this is something that we've we've kind of come back to several times on this show. And it's it's just it's a it's a constant problem. Um, if I can just be a nerd here. Um, sure. How did you get around the data problems that I that I was that we've been talking about? I mean, some states don't even report these numbers, right? 
Yeah. So uh, I've got to give credit to um, Kylie Murdoch, who's the co-author of this report, who did a ton of the research. The uniform crime statistics you talked about at the FBI statistics, they're terrific, but three years later. You know, like you talked about, they come out usually nine months uh, af after the year, but even then they're really incomplete and they get filled in over time. And that is more the case in rural areas of states than urban areas. Yes. So what we did is we looked at, you know, every state justice department puts out a crime report, just about every state. So we looked at what the states were putting out at the end of the year. And that was basically 37 of 50 states. And then for the rest of those states, we, um, uh, we looked at other places where you could find data, usually local sources. Most of the crime reporting problem is not murder. It's the other crimes. Most states or the news media keeps track of the number of murders that are happening in the state in any given year. So if there wasn't a state report, it would be, you know, the year end, the January 3rd article in the Florida Sun Sentinel that said, you know, there was X numbers of murders in Florida this year. Right, right. So you basically put together the data from a variety of sources in lieu of the FBI, basically. Your report doesn't get into causality. Um, it, it's a, a earnest effort to push back on some lazy punditry. But I do want to ask about that. Um, the most obvious factor here that jumps out at me are lax gun laws, right? Red states do have higher rates of gun ownership on average and higher rates of gun violence. And that's been the case for a long time. But last year we had uh, uh, the journalist Rachel Cohen on the show, and she talked about this a little bit more uh, in regards to 2020. Um, and according to FBI data, almost 40 million guns were sold in 2020, and that was yeah. a 40% increase from 2019. And she um, cited research that found that 20% of those who bought guns in 2020 were first-time gun owners. So they... They hadn't, they they hadn't maybe had so much experience, and now all of a sudden yeah. they're carrying guns. And you're, this is all happening during a incredibly stressful pandemic. There's a lot of you know, untreated mental health issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, would you be comfortable like talking, just speculating about what other factors may be driving this red state murder wave? Because like I think that there there must be a lot going into this. Uh, these red states, you have a list of the states with the highest murder rate. And they are also among the poorest states. You know, there, there's a lot of different um, possible explanations that kind of probably go together. Yeah. So let's start with guns. Okay. <clears throat> because, you know, most of these people, about 80% of homicides are with a gun. They're not dying, you know, in the parlor with the candlestick. Right. Um, so you're right. Gun, gun purchasing has exploded in the last few years. And um, yeah, it's been about 39 million in 2020. Um, and that was much higher than 2019. But when you compare to like 2006, 2007, 2008, we're talking about increases of gun purchases on a factor of like 400%. So the, the amount of guns in the hands of Americans today is far higher than the high levels it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. 
yes, a bunch of those are first time um, buyers. Um, the other thing I would say is education level and poverty levels, I think, could be a factor. So if you look at incarceration rates, particularly for violent crime, a lot of it is people who only have a high school degree or don't even have a high school degree. So, you know, there are barriers that once you cross an education level, you're less likely to commit violent crime. Who knows which is the chicken and which is the egg Right in that one. Poverty is um, certainly a factor. Density can be a factor too. So, you know, you can have high gun ownership rates which you have in South Dakota and North Dakota and places like that. But, you know, there's not that much density. The murder rates, the homicide rates aren't super high. Density matters as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when we had Rachel Cohen on the show, as I mentioned a minute ago, she also talked about um, the opioid crisis and mm -hmm. the increase in open-air drug markets, which are just a... a kind of magnet for for violence, including, of course, gun violence. And, um, you know, a lot of these red states have been hit very, very hard by that. Um, I'm going to ask you to step into your pundit hat and uh, and and speculate about why why this is such a, a, a difficult issue for Democrats to talk about. Why, why do they do such a poor job pointing out this kind of correlation that you found out besides the gap in, uh, in the, in the, in when data are reported? Are, 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 are there other factors? Yeah, it's a complicated issue for Democrats. It, I mean, it's interesting. You, you look at in the last year or so, a lot of tough on crime Democrats have gotten elected. I think the Eric Adams election in New York City is really a is a watershed election in terms of the attitudes of urban voters about what they're looking for. And you're seeing some indications in other places like San Francisco that the same thing is happening. So crime, you know, is for sure going up in these places. It's not near the level of the crimes that we had in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And I think part of the difficulty is that, you know, crime is a complicated, nuanced, multi, multifaceted issues. I mean, that was what we were just talking about a few minutes ago. And much of what needs to be done to reduce violent crime in particular in America are the types of things that don't necessarily sound like crime things, you know, have better gun control go after gun trafficking a lot more, have better opportunities for people. Mental health is a huge issue. I think 20 years from now, we'll look back and realize, wow, mental health was the number one factor yeah. in, in crimes. You know, what do you do with youth? Because most crimes are committed by boys slash men between the ages of 16 and 25. So when you're looking at solutions and you're in an area where crime is apparent because of the density of cities, crime is apparent, you take a more holistic approach. When you're in places where crime seems a little bit more remote, you take a hammer to a nail approach. And look, I remember 1988 when Willie Horton was the issue that sunk the Mike Dukakis campaign. Like this has always been a fraught issue for Democrats. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's true. Um, folks, there is, of course, a connection between policing and violent crime. It kind of runs counter to the popular notion that you just throw more police budgets at, at these issues. Um, you know, a big, a, big, a big problem with fighting crime is uh, distrust of and, and fear of policing, uh, of, of police in a lot of communities that are, um, you know, where we see a lot of crime. They, they don't call the cops. They don't work with the cops. They don't, they don't trust the cops. And that's, again, running counter to the popular narrative. Jim Kessler, I believe we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on the show. I'd also like to thank Jennifer Berkshire and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks at Alternate and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall. Please do. Uh, you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, I'd like to thank all of you fine and discerning people for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Don't you, baby, one more time. Don't make me sit all alone and cry when it's over.